0: When Martin Lloyd-Jones was called to be the senior pastor at Westminster Chapel in London, his first task was to make his way to the front of the church and have someone bolt the pulpit to the ground. And I want you to know that the importance that we at Christ Fellowship place on preaching is the same As Lloyd-Jones had at Westminster Chapel. In light of his inspiring example, I want to begin by reading a passage for you to reflect upon in Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it, and all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave sense so that the people could understand the reading. This is the text that I chiefly turn to for the, the rationale for we as the people of God to, to stand out of reverence. For the authority of God's word. So I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. And while you make your way to Romans 3. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word. We will begin in verse 27 of Romans chapter 3. And Lord willing come to the end of chapter 3 this week. This is God's word. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Pray with me. What a privilege it is, Father in heaven, to open your word and read it. And we're excited to spend the next few minutes studying it together so that we would be changed so that we would be transformed so that our lives would be different so that we would move one step closer and to being to conformity the Lord Jesus Christ the intended goal of our salvation and we thank you as we have been learning in one of the Veritas classes that this will come to pass for all of your people there There are no exceptions, there are no exclusions, there are no buts or howevers. All of God's people will finally come to the point where we are glorified, we will be rid of the presence of sin forever and ever. So Lord, help us as we walk through this important passage. May your, your Holy Spirit come in great power so that we would understand, we recognize apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, We will struggle to understand. Indeed, we will fail to understand. And so we look forward to having you open our eyes and open our ears and open our minds and our hearts. The truth of your holy word in Jesus name. Amen. Well, last week we learned about what we referred to as the greatest offering. The essential message was this, that. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, was indeed the greatest offering. Jesus' sacrificial death is our means, then, of receiving the righteousness of God. And we have argued at great lengths over the last four weeks that that is, in fact, our greatest need namely the righteousness of God so this morning I want to continue to to walk with you on this path the title of the message is behold your God and when you give serious and serious and and and, and a, a belabored consideration of the doctrine of propitiation you can't do anything but behold Your God. Just to review, we have seen the meaning of propitiation, which is simply the turning away of wrath by an offering. We have seen the mandate of propitiation and learned that Jesus was put forward by God the Father as a very public offering. Third, we have seen the, the motivation of propitiation. We have learned that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God and he affirmed the love of God. We have seen the message of propitiation that clears the path for you and I to understand grace. It clears the path for spiritual freedom. And the doctrine of propitiation clears the path for you and I to worship Almighty God. Propitiation then vindicates the justice of God. Listen to these words by the great Bible commentator John Stott. Stott says, God left unpunished the sins of former generations, letting the nations go their own way and overlooking their ignorance, not because of any injustice on his part, Or without any thought of condoning evil, but in his forbearance and only because it was his fixed intention in the fullness of time to punish these sins in the death of his son. This was the only way in which he could be just or righteous. Indeed, Demonstrate his justice and simultaneously be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And then Stott concludes both justice, which he refers to as the divine attribute and justification, which he refers to as the divine activity would be impossible without the cross. The doctrine of justification is impossible Without the cross of Christ. I want you to see one final heading as the Apostle Paul seeks to lock his argument into the hearts and minds of his readers and his listeners. Move with me to the final heading that we will call this morning the mindset for the people of God. What is the mindset for the people of God? And there are four words that I want to have you to con- have you consider with me this morning. The four words I want to give you up front, give you a bit of a road map, and then we'll walk through those four words. First, we will learn about boasting. Boasting. The second word, behaving. That's the word all young people love. Behaving. The third word is the word beholding. And then the final word is the word belonging or belongingness. So look with me first at this word boasting. Boasting. Here is Paul's question in verse 27 of chapter 3. Then what becomes of our boasting? Do you see that there? What becomes of our boasting? It's important that we understand the the general meaning of this word translated boasting. It comes from a Greek word that means the act of publicly and pretentiously displaying or proclaiming a satisfied contentment in our own achievements. Now that's a that's kind of a wordy definition, but it means a person who who boasts in such a way to be. To be put on display. When I read those two definitions, I I think about this. If I am a man who boasts, I'm going to fold my arms, I'm going to spread my legs out wide, and I'm going to boast. I'm going to brag. And that's what Paul asks here. What becomes of our boasting? Now, if you can imagine the Jewish response, I made reference to this in Veritas this morning. Made reference to the fact that I love meeting Jewish people. Does anyone else love meeting Jewish people? It is it is fascinating. I remember the last time I came back from Belarus, I, I stopped in New York City and it was like an all-night stop and I just slept in the airport to save money. It's crazy. And I woke up and I got on the plane and we we flew out of... New York City and I was so excited I'd never been in New York City and I was so excited to to look at all the sites but this older Jewish woman seated next to me she must have flown in and out of New York many times because she could care less about looking outside all she wanted to do was engage me in conversation when she found out that I was a Christian and we had a rather lengthy conversation and I just thought how what what a what a what an enriching time it is to to talk to one of God's chosen people. But I want you to think about the Jewish response now that Paul discusses at the end of this chapter, and I want you to consider the Jewish response to be something like this: with legs spread out wide and arms crossed, with a, a bit of a. a a confident expression on one's face it was martin luther who said this about the jews he said the jews regarded themselves as righteous because they obeyed the law therefore they do not seek to be justified by grace through faith in christ they do not want Christ's righteousness because they fully believe that they are already in possession of righteousness. Close quote. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? And do you hear what Luther's saying? Is for the Jewish person of the day, they don't need the righteousness of God by grace alone, through faith alone. They don't need propitiation the reason they don't need it is they already have it. That's what they think. And your mind at this point should automatically revert to the context that tells us from verse 21 and following that the righteousness of God is on display. It is the righteousness of God that is on display, not the righteousness of a Jewish individual who believes that, that he has Merited favor in the eyes of a holy God. Notice Paul's response. To his question. What becomes of our boasting? And he gives a very short three word answer. you see it in verse seven? He says it is excluded. This is excluded. Boasting is excluded. The word excluded. I want to illustrate this for you. When Paul says it is excluded, the Greek word literally means shut the door. It's excluded. So this, this notion of, of self-confidence, this notion of folding my arms and, and meriting favor in the eyes of a holy God, this boasting is excluded. The door is shut. We have no basis to boast Yet many times we are so quick to to tell the world about our abilities, to tell the world about our accomplishments, to tell the world about our resumes. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that many of you have memorized, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the what? It is the gift of God, not a result of of works, so that no one may boast. As I studied this passage, an irony came to mind. There there is a a beautiful irony irony here, and a perplexing irony, because there are two things. There are literally only two things that we not only can boast about, but there are two things that we must boast. Boast about. This is why it's counterintuitive. Paul says, listen, boasting is excluded. Yet, in at least two other passages, he says, here are two things that you can boast about and indeed must boast about. First Corinthians chapter 1, 28 to 31. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring. To nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so you see, this is so counterintuitive. Paul says, boasting is excluded, people. Like, get it through your minds. Boasting is excluded. But then he says in 1 Corinthians 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He goes on in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Far be it from me to boast, that agrees with what he says in verse 27, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which... The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so the two things that we can boast in. Indeed, the two things we must boast in are the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross upon which he died. What effect now does the doctrine of justification by faith alone have on us? It truly humbles us. Our only boast is in the Lord And his precious work on the cross. It's a story I have likely shared many times. But in one of my visits to Belarus. I went to one of these little village churches. And I walked into this little church. And if you could see it. It it made our chapel look big. It was just this little tiny church. With a little makeshift pulpit. Right up at the front. Without a platform or anything. And behind The pulpit, there was a wooden sign with a few Russian words inscribed in it. And so I went to the pastor and I asked him what the words said in English, translated from Russian. And the man who was with me, Vladimir, who was translating, he repeated the words of the pastor with a big smile on his face. And he said, The sign says, We preach Christ crucified. That was his boast. That was his boast that that we preach Christ crucified. And so boasting is excluded. That's the first thing that we need to pay close attention to in terms of our mindset for you and I as the people of God. The second word is the word that the first two rows are captivated with. Behaving. Have you all heard your mom say, I just wish you would learn to how come no one in the front two rows said it and all of you said that? Just for fun, would you, would you tell the front two rows, I wish you'd learn to behave. That's the word we want to look at. Behave. They're also not laughing. <laughs> Here's Paul's next question. By what kind of a law? Question. By a law of works? In other words, is there something that, that we must do in order to be justified? Is there something that we must do to stand in right relationship with God? Is there something that I must do to receive the gift of salvation? And is this not the question that people are asking all around the world? Questions like this. How much do I pay? How much do I pay? What do I need to do? What is the cost? You'll recall with me that justification is that act, according to R.C. Sproul, by which unjust sinners are made right or righteous in the sight of a just and a holy God. Think of it this way. God views our sins as Forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. I want you to just meditate on that for just a minute. That if you are justified, if you have been declared righteous, that God thinks of your sins past, present and future as forgiven. And that not only are your sins forgiven, but Christ's righteousness belongs to you. But beyond that, I want you to also see that God declares you to be righteous in his sight. And we've gone to great lengths to to discuss this and make sure that it's getting through our heads. I didn't say, and the Bible doesn't say, you are righteous. We all have this by now, right? The Bible says you have been declared as righteous. You've been declared as righteous. It's like two sides of the coin. On one side, we are declared not guilty by a holy God. We are forgiven. But on the other side of the coin, we are counted righteous through Christ. We are counted in God's sight as, listen, as having obeyed the law of God, as Jesus obeyed the law of God. If that that reality doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. These are truly astounding doctrinal truths. And so Paul is jealous here in Romans 3 to to guard with all his might the doctrine of justification. Is it by works, he asks? Here's the answer. No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Hold your finger, if you would, in Romans 3 and go to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. I want to simply read verses 15 and 16 and then have you do a bit of a a bird's eye overview of these two verses. Because what Paul does is he explains justification from three different angles. Verse 15 of Galatians 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. First angle. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in jesus christ that much we know but then there's a second angle he explores we also believed in christ jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law you see he just he he changes it slightly so that we would see the nuance and then finally by works of the law as if we hadn't allowed it to sink deeply into our hearts yet By works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's the question once again. Do I need to behave in order to be in right relationship with God? Let me say it a little bit more snidely. Do I need to be a good little boy in order to be in right relationship with God? Do you know that this is what the world religions basically teach? That we merit favor with God or we merit favor with the deity so that we will stand in right relationship with him. I'm afraid this is the question that, that plagues our world. We desperately want to earn God's favor. We think we can buy our way into heaven. We desperately want to do it on our own. And so the, two, the first two words that we're looking at, boasting and behaving, these are negative words. Boasting is excluded. Behaving is out because behaving will not merit favor in the eyes of God. But Paul concludes now by sharing two additional mindsets that move from negative to positive. Boasting and behaving, negative angle. But the next two words are entirely positive. It's the word. The third word is beholding, beholding. Here's what Paul is driving at. He is calling us to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. I I read a quote by a, a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary just a few weeks ago by the name of Jared Wilson. And Jared Wilson boils down the gospel message in a few words that you should never, ever forget. In fact, these, these are words that I was so impressed with. These are words that could go on your desk. These are words that could go on your refrigerator. These are words, if you were a Presbyterian, that you could get tattooed on your arm. But not a Baptist. I'm going to get myself in trouble. Listen to what Jared Wilson says. And I'll repeat this a few times as we move along in this passage. Because it. It will take a minute for you to digest it. He says this. The essential. Essence of the Christian message. Is not. Behave. But behold. The essential message. Of Christianity is not behave but behold the word behold means to reflect or contemplate it means to to gaze at the beauty of something or someone we need to understand that we do not come into right relationship which is based on our behavior this much we've seen over and over again we are called not to behave we are called to behold the living God. And I think you agree with me once again that this, this mindset is in totally counterintuitive. It runs against our grain. Why? Because we're used to earning our way. We're, we're used to being good boys and girls. We're used to paying the price and receiving something for it. We'll learn more of this as we move into Romans chapter 4. Next week we will see that the Apostle Paul uses two illustrations from Scripture. And they're the best illustrations in my mind he could ever use. He uses the life of Abraham and the life of David. Men who are regarded by the Jews as righteous. Indeed, Abraham. He's the one we sing about in in children's church. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I never liked that song growing up. But can you, can you, along with Jared Wilson, understand the, the essential Christian message is not behave, but behold? I want to leave you with some practical applications that I trust will encourage you and, and really launch you out of this place as you live your Christian life. Number one, when we behold the living God, we are moved to action. When we behold the living God, we're moved to action. When Wilson says the essential essence of the Christian message is not behave, but behold, don't confuse this with loose living. Don't confuse this with, oh, I, I don't have to do anything, or I don't have to be a holy person. No, it's the exact opposite. The essential message is not behave, but behold. And here's what you learn. When you behold the living God, you will be moved to action. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll see a a vivid example of this, of a man who was moved to action. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. As you're turning there, many of you already know what's coming. It's a wonderful story. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple above him stood the seraphim each had six wings and with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of, Of him who is called. And the house was filled with smoke. May I stop at the end of verse 4. I think we would all agree. That in this. This vision that Isaiah receives. He was never once tempted to fall asleep. He never once nodded off. He's not ready to take a nap. Why? Because he is beholding. The living God. He's beholding the living God. I remember. I was at a Mariner game. I don't think I've ever shared this story publicly. And I felt compelled to look at my phone. And I was looking at probably another score from another baseball team or looking on Amazon for a deal on books or something. And while I was looking at my phone, do you know what I missed? Gary, this is just going to kill you. I missed a triple play. I'm at what was then Safeco Field, and I'm looking at my ridiculous phone. You okay, Lacey? You look very distressed. (laughs) So do you, Boston. Because I wasn't paying attention, I missed a triple play that I may never see again live, ever Baseball fans know that rarely happens when Isaiah is before the living God. He is beholding God. He's not playing with his cell phone. He's not thinking about what he's going to be doing next next week or next month. He's not working on his life mission statement. He's beholding the living God. Verse 5 And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away. and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make a heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What we learn in this story is that when Isaiah beholds the living God, he is, he is shot out of the cannon to serve the living God. And I would submit to you that when you behold the living God, it will, it will send you to the nations. It will send you into your community. It will send you to your schools. It will send you to the marketplace of ideas. It will send you to your place of employment to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're behaving? No, because you behold the living God. We don't have time to turn there, but in Acts chapter 9, when Paul, who is Saul actually, when he... Comes face to face with the living God when he beholds the living God, what happens? He is shot out of a cannon and he is greatly used for the glory of God. And so, the first point when we behold the living God, we are moved to action by definition. Number two, when we behold the living God, we are transformed, we cannot help. But be transformed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face. Beholding the glory of God. Are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord. Who is the spirit. Young people when you behold the living God. You are changed. You are changed. And you grow into a young woman of God. And a young man of God. Mom and dad, grandpa and grandma, when you behold the living God, that's when sanctification truly begins to take shape in your life. Number three, when we behold the living God, we believe him. When we behold the living God, we believe him. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. And I, I'm sort of hesitating because we're going to go here. To this passage again next week. And it is a really a foundational text in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Next week we will begin to learn a bit more about Abraham. Who was Abram. Who grew up in a family of idol worshipers. And God called him to himself in Genesis chapter 12 and then in chapter 15 verse 6. Notice what happens. And he believed Yahweh. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The writer of Hebrews says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists And that he rewards those who seek him. It makes me think about what King David said in Psalm chapter 27. You talk about beholding the living God. He says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. How many are here to to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? Of the living God. You're not here to be good. You're not here to behave. You're here to behold. And when you behold. When you gaze upon the living God. It revolutionizes your life. It revolutionizes your behavior. It revolutionizes. revolutionizes It it changes your affections. It changes your life. About two weeks ago. I received an email from. A guy just out of the blue. Who read my blog. And he asked me. Uh, He says, I I just wrote a book. It's a men's book, which caught my attention because I enjoy men's books. And he said, would you read my book and review it on your blog for me? And so I agreed, and I just received the book on Friday. And I'm working through this book and was struck by what the author, Joe Bernard, says. He says, I am convinced, and he's addressing men... But include boys and girls and women as well in the sentence. He says, I am convinced that no man or no woman will make serious progress towards spiritual maturity until he or she is captured by the glory of Christ. This is what the author is trying to do. He spent almost 60 pages making the argument and that in most churches in men's ministry and i would also argue women's ministry we 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 load people with activities and we load people with challenges and and most of those activities and most of those challenges are are good they're good activities they're good challenges But he says one of the things that's missing in our our local church ministries is that, that men in particular are failing to be captivated by the glory of Christ. And when you're failing to be captivated by the glory of Christ, you struggle believing Christ. He goes on. He says being captivated by the glory of Christ is the secret to mounting a coup against a false God. Men, you want to deal with temptation? You want to deal with the, the idols of your heart? Being captivated by the glory of Christ is the secret to mounting a coup against a false god. And then he says this, the only way ultimately to be avoid being taken captive by an idol is to be taken captive by Christ. To be captivated by Christ only Christ's beauty can fortify the heart and insulate it from foreign invasion. I have to say, and I'm not going to tell Joe this, but the first 60 pages of this book kind of bored me to tears. And I, I was getting worried. I was like, man, the guy sent me a free book. I'm going to have to say nice things about it. E gads, This, this is killing me until and in the scope of God's providence, I'm on the treadmill this morning reading these three sentences that fit directly into this message. We, as men and women and boys and girls, must be captivated by the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, look with me at this last word belonging, belonging, beginning in verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? How do you think the Jews responded to that question? Absolutely. But then he goes on. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Listen. There was a time. There was a time when none of us belonged. There was a time when when my heart and your heart was was bitterly opposed to God and the, the word of God and the purposes of God. There was a time when our minds railed against everything that we've spoken of this morning. We were like Nebuchadnezzar and we rebelled against the authority of God. There was a time when we were not reconciled to God. Indeed we were his enemies in Romans chapter 5 verse 10 Paul says if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. There is also a time we were without hope and without God we were aliens to his promises We're strangers in a strange land, Ephesians chapter 2 says. But Paul says now that all who are in Christ, they belong. We are members of a family. When Ken talks about leaving Whatcom County and then coming back and falling in love with the county again, my suspicion is it's more than just Mount Baker. Is Ken and Tammy were glad to be back in their church family. In their family. We are a family. We hurt together. We share joys together. We walk together. We admonish one another in the family of God. Both believing Jews and Gentiles have received right standing with God. For as Paul says, he, and this must have just killed the Jews. It must have killed them. He justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. I can just see the response. But remember, boasting is excluded. Paul concludes then with one final question. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Does the law have any purpose? He says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That little phrase, overthrow, comes from the Greek word that means to inactivate. It means to render useless And I believe that he anticipates the response of some who will argue that justification by faith will lead to loose living or lawless living. Notice his response. We heard the response this morning in Veritas. Meganoito. By no means. This is the phrase that we've looked at in class and looked at in Iron Man. This is the, the strongest of all Greek phrases that denotes a negative response that's exactly what paul says do we then overthrow do we inactivate do we render useless the law by this faith by no means perish the thought on the contrary he says we uphold the law the word uphold means to establish the validity of something do we overthrow the law no we uphold the law This is the mindset that God is calling you and I to. And that is this. Are you beholding the living God? Do you delight in God? Are you you banking on God's promises? Are you trusting in the promises of God? One commentator says it like this. We can only marvel at the wisdom of God holiness love and mercy of God and fall down before him in humble worship and then he says the cross should be enough to break the hardest heart and melt the iciest heart there's some this morning and I've gazed into a few of your eyes and your heart is hard your heart is Icy. the Puritans used to say this, the same sun that melts the wax makes the stones crack. What is your heart like this morning? Is your heart soft? Is it ready to receive the word of God? Is it pliable? Is it bendable? Is it melting or is it hard? I remember I did an illustration several years ago where I got some Play-Doh. And I wanted to make the Play-Doh really hard and crusty. And I thought of the illustration late in the week. And so I I couldn't just set it out. Normally you could set it on your desk in a few weeks. It would be hard and crusty. But I needed this illustration quick. So I got this piece of Play-Doh. And I put it out in the hot sun. It didn't take but about 18 hours. And it went from soft and pliable to hard and crusty. I had a young man in my office shortly after the sermon. And I had that as an illustration on my desk, as some of you know. And this young man I was talking to, it was very clear as we sat with his father that he had a heart that was hard and stony and unrepentant. And so I went to my desk and I I got that piece of rock, what used to be Plato, and I gave it to him and I named him my name. And I said, I want you to take this rock home. I want you to put it on your desk. And I want you to remember every time you look at it that that is what your heart is like until you repent. And until you repent, it needs to stay on your desk. And I have no idea what happened with that young man. But the challenge for you and I is this is our heart stony? Is our heart hard? If it is, we need to turn our attention to the living God and behold the living God. And when we behold the living God, we shoot like a cannon. Into the marketplace of ideas. And God will use you greatly. The scripture makes it very clear. That God is patient with sinners. Aren't you glad for that reality? Aren't you glad that God is patient with me? I'm glad he's patient with you. Amen to that. Know this. That in the final analysis. No sin will go unchallenged. No sin will go unchallenged. John MacArthur said, because of his justice, no sin will go unpunished. Yet because of his grace, no sin is beyond forgiveness. But pastor, you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand what I've thought. You don't understand what I plotted. You don't understand what I did with my hands. You don't understand what I did with my eyes. You don't understand the damage I inflicted on this individual. I ruined her reputation. I took a life. I slandered someone. I turned away from the marriage covenant. I was harsh with my children. Whatever it is that you've done. Know this. Because of his justice. As MacArthur said. No sin will go unpunished. But because of his grace. No sin is beyond forgiveness. This is the reality. We'll close. Every sin. From the very beginning of time. Until the end. Will be paid for. Either you pay the price for your sin in hell where you are judged for all eternity. Or the Lord Jesus Christ bears the weight of your sin when you place your faith and your trust in him. And so I close by asking this simple question. Have you come to the foot of the cross for salvation? Are you delighting in the living God? Are you beholding his glory? Are you like Abraham who believed God? And it was credited to you as righteousness. This morning, I urge you to to behold your God. Let's pray, Lord. As we close this service with this song, may it be the cry of each one of our hearts as as we behold you, the living God. May we remember the story in Isaiah six as Isaiah beheld your glory may we remember the story in the book of acts when saul on the road was was converted and then he was sent to the nations to do a mighty work for your glory may that same thing happen with with many in this place as we behold the living god may we be changed may we be transformed may we be sanctified all for the glory of the lord jesus christ in his name we pray amen